0: gave a start to the careers of a lot of people in this room. Somehow, it doesn't seem to command the respect it deserves.
1: It's been 37 long years since horror had its place on this show when The Exorcist picked up two Academy Awards. So tonight we want to give horror films their due and pay tribute to the movies that love to dare us, but mostly love to scare us.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. I'm Spro. Hi, Spro. And happy Halloween. Happy
2: Halloween to you, buddy. I have a question. Do you decorate for the holiday? Or do you, like, hand
0: out candy, dress up, and kill sexually promiscuous teens? My days of penetrating amorous young co-eds are thoroughly behind me. The wife and I do have some autumnal decor, but we never remember to dig it out and set it up. And the last time I dressed up was nearly a decade ago. Wife and I went as box trolls. Do you all those questions you just asked me? I don't, have I ever brought up the fact that
2: I do like 26 New Year's resolutions on this podcast yet? Yeah. Okay. So one of my challenges this year is to decorate for Halloween because I've never decorated. I hand out candy. I do have social anxiety. So I hand out candy in a gorilla suit. So nobody knows it's me, even though it's my house. and I'm sure they <laughs> I'll assume. I think this year I might, if I could get my weight off, go as Wesley or the Dread Pirate Roberts from The Princess Bride. That would be good. I got a full head Freddy Krueger mask from like back in high school. So I'm going to build myself a Freddy Krueger scarecrow. Hmm
0: hmm I'm looking forward to it. I love Halloween and I love Christmas because you get to see kids be kids and I What's just you- wish we did more with like the mythos
2: of things. Like I feel like you say Halloween and kids will be like, Yeah, you dress up and you you know, the candy and everything like that, where it's like, man, if we could just be like talking about the mythos of like scaring away evil spirits and all that jazz, like Isn't that, that be-
0: religiously based though? I'm fine with us getting away from that. Is it religiously based? Pretty sure, because November 1st is All Saints Day or Dia de los Muertos. The night prior is where you're supposed to scare away all the bad ghosts, hence the dressing up. Yeah, but I don't see
2: ghosts as being religious. I would like it if the kids were like, Going out with their scary masks and being like, I'm here to be a part of the monster squad and get rid of the bad spirits in the air. You want to know something brutal?
0: Sure. The town that I live in actually got together to vote out Halloween. They didn't though, right? No, there's no (gasps) trick-or-treating. What? Yeah, they voted it out. That's like when the horror episode of Footloose. When. (laughs) When the wife and I first moved here, Halloween was the first holiday. And I set up the grill, we got some sausages, got some dark beers, and we were sitting outside. And one of our neighbors was like, well, what are you guys doing? We were like, oh, we're just making some food, got a bucket of candy, waiting for the trick-or-treaters. And they were like, you're going to be waiting a while because they're not coming. I was like, oh, you guys don't do trick-or-treating in the condos here? And he goes, no, we don't do trick-or-treating at all. There's no trick-or-treating in this town. What is the reasoning? It's a bunch of people that are worried about their lawns and their shrubberies and vandalism and maybe just don't like kids anymore if they ever did. Part of the joy for me is like giving candy to
2: children because I'm not a child anymore and can experience that joy and enthusiasm
0: for something so small and minute. That's crazy, bro. Yeah, crazy is a word for it. I would say what you said earlier is pretty good. (laughs) Halloween (laughs) Halloween footless. Well, we've got a whale of a show today. We've collected together a bunch of Spro and Lee's favorite friends and guests and asked them the following prompt. Please name a horror movie you think was overlooked by the Academy and make a case for giving it one Oscar of your choosing. So today, Spro, you and I will be listening a little bit more than we'll be talking. (sighs) Sounds great
2: to me. As we watch more and more Oscar shows, it's kind of ridiculous how excited we get for something against the Oscars type, historical fiction and drama. So when Parasite or The Shape of Water are nominated, we're like, ooh, something against the grain, but it's still not the standards of those genres. There's still the, how do I want to wear this? Let's make a comparison, yeah? The Oscars are nominating and awarding the big plate little meal films. The one ounce filet mignon, perfectly seared with a Merlot aioli and palm frites, which is fine and all. But what if you just want a burger? Like the most expensive dish in the country. Do you know what it is? It's a burger in Las Vegas, the Fleur burger at Fleur. It's $5,000. It's a $5,000 burger, a $5,000 burger. And I think that's a perfect analogy of what we're doing here on this show today. Because I think genre films like horror and science fiction and the abstract, these are the burgers to the fancy plates. And I find it easier to enjoy a burger some nights like I do these types of films sometimes. And so we're looking for the $5,000 burger of horror films. Today, you, Lee, have the oscar fun fact for us i'm excited i'm gonna just start not talking sit back and listening early brought to you by odd dog coffee (sighs) for some of us coffee is more than just a pick-me-up for some of us coffee is as important as who should have won best actor of 1993 we here at spro and lee take on the academy take our coffee seriously we are passionate eccentric and a little odd and for us there's odd Dog.
0: On Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean, and when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, no, no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day.
2: Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, rishi shroom and Altheanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders
0: over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but odd. For the record, I don't like this. I did not want to supplant you, I was only trying to write an introductory explanation for this episode and now here I am fun facting. I feel a bit like Goldilocks eating your porridge or sleeping in your bed. Nonetheless, thank you for the honor and thanks for getting me started. You're dead right. I would have said it if you hadn't. Empirically, the Oscars indulge historical drama, social drama, drama drama, all at the expense of genre pictures. Horror, comedy, science fiction. Sure, they snag the occasional nomination, technical awards mostly, and sometimes they even win, but you'll almost never see them take home any of the big five. For instance, in nearly a century of Academy Awards, there have been fewer than 20 Oscars given out to films, which fit somewhat comfortably within the horror genre. Some notables, Jaws, Aliens, Misery, And the horror film with the most Oscars is Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs. Lambs remains the only horror film to ever win Best Picture and one of three films in Oscar history to take the top five prizes, picture, director, actor, actress, and writing. But ultimately, and despite some conspicuous examples, it's extraordinary if Academy voters even nominate horror films, let alone present them with an Oscar. So what makes the horror genre so easy to neglect? or to discredit. Perhaps it's because horror films are, by definition, horrific. We all know at least one person who cannot deal with horror movies. Mm Although, in my experience, the same people that say that do it with a giddy smile or a slight air of excitement. They like the jump scares and the gore, but either they want to play coy about it or they simply haven't realized that deep down they're exhilarated by what they're seeing. Nevertheless, horror more than any other genre is meant to unsettle its audience, to tap into and exploit our fears, to disturb us, to keep us up at night, And if a movie can do that to its audience, no matter how well made, maybe subconsciously we harbor some resentment towards it, why the fuck would we want to heap accolades on this goddamn movie? It gave me nightmares for three months. I get that. I get, I suppose I get that. Or maybe it's just old-fashioned prejudice. Let's face it, horror movies are easy to write off as predictable, stupid, or even exploitative. And there's a general feeling that ghosts and gore are gauche or gratuitous. These movies are meant for kids or teens or weirdo adults. And even if a horror film manages to shake free of these stigmas and gain mass appeal, they rarely seem to stack up, in the Academy's mind anyway, to those important films. Now, horror movies will always be fringe cinema to some people, And many of them seem to be members of the Academy. Whatever the reason or reasons, we hate it. And we bet some of you hate it too. So today, Spro and Lee resolve to bring horror to the fore and guided by the rotted hearts of a few twisted guests. We shall bestow a series of blood-splattered Oscars on a few forsaken horror films. Enjoy. Welcome back to our friend and frequent guest, Miss Emily. How are you, Miss Emily?
3: You know... It's a rainy day over here in New York. Oh, it's a little gray, it's a little drizzly. It's a good day to talk about horror movies.
0: Oh, well, that's why you're here. We asked you to name a horror movie that you thought was overlooked by the Academy, and you said.
4: You got your toothbrush? Do You have your deodorant? Do You have your cozy clothes?
0: Got that.
5: What?
2: Do they know I'm black. Think? You might wanna you know
3: mom and dad my black boyfriend will be coming up this weekend I just don't want you to be shocked that he's a black man
5: <laughs> I ain't never seen you like this before bruh meeting families taking road trips. do so come back all bougie, man Come back get your damn pants up to your damn stomach <laughs>
0: You Said Get Out, Jordan Peele's directorial debut. So you guys coming up from the city?
3: Yeah, we're just heading up for the weekend.
0: Can I see your license, please?
1: He wasn't driving.
0: I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID.
1: Call me Dean and you're hungry, my man.
0: So how long has this been going on, this this
2: thing? (laughs) We hired Georgina and Walter to help care for my parents. When they died, I couldn't bear to let them go.
1: smoke in front of my daughter i'm gonna quit she'd take care of that for you how hypnosis i'm good actually
4: are you ready for
5: this how bad can it be so look i go do my research apparently a whole bunch of brothers been missing in this suburb but it's cool
2: bro how you're not scared of this man
5: couldn't see no brother around here chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being here Sorry, man.
4: Get out! Yo! Rose, we gotta go. Is everything okay? Rose, the keys. Just get the keys. I don't know where they are. Rose! Sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. wait. Sink.
3: Mom, it's a terrible thing to waste.
4: Terrible thing to waste. people are getting nervous. <laughs> no. No. No, 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 no,
3: no, 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 no,
0: no. a, bomb is a terrible thing to waste. The highest-grossing debut film based on an original screenplay, which globally ranked in 250 million dollars, on a four and a half million dollar budget. Unlike Peele's newest film, Get Out was actually scary.
3: Um, oh, <laughs> seriously? Seriously? There are a lot of people that would uh, disagree with you on that, though. Yeah. Did you see it, Emily? Honestly, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I still feel the need to defend it from, um, from, your, from your white gaze.
0: <laughs> oh, God. All right. If you would like to join us on our year in
3: review episode,
0: I will talk with you about Nope. But for right now, Nope. Okay.
3: (laughs) Thank you for setting your boundaries.
2: I just want to point out that one of the headlines of a Rotten Tomatoes reviewer says, A better movie to argue about than to watch.
3: (laughs) Interesting.
0: Good job, you two.
3: I'll get back to you on this.
0: Yes. So more than most of the other horror films that we're talking about today, Get Out did receive acknowledgement from the Academy. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, and Best Screenplay. It only took home the Writing Award for Peel. But what's the other award you'd argue that it deserved? Best Picture. Okay. Thank you for joining us. And... uh... <laughs> Are you familiar with what won Best Picture that year?
3: Uh this was Shape of Water year, wasn't it?
0: I, I was hoping you knew, because I can't
3: think of it. <laughs> yes, it is. It is the Shape of Water, the Shape of Water one, which to be honest, I was a huge fan of. I thought it was a fantastic movie. But Get Out was such a game changer and such a surprise that, you know, I would have loved to have seen it get Best Picture.
0: Why was it a game changer? I mean, I guess I have my notions of why you think it's a game changer, but maybe our audience doesn't. What is it about this film that changed? Changes The game. And what is the game?
3: Oh, dude. I mean, it's, it's no secret that the genre of horror and even suspense is mostly owned by historically white people. So the fact that Jordan Peele came out of the gate with this, and it was so strong so fast. There was not even like a lead up. It was just boom, he came with Get Out, you know, and even called on so much of the whiteness of industry and uh, the American society and American world and turned it into this really beautiful and haunting and hilarious horror movie was... I mean, I thought it was fantastic. And I thought it was a game changer.
2: Even how he inverted the tropes, right, of like, usually movies or in society or anything like that, real life, you would put a, you know, defenseless Caucasian woman in the middle of the inner city neighborhood. And you'd be like, Oh, yeah, I understand why she's why she's afraid and da da da. And then the beginning of Get Out is you put this strong African American man in the middle of a suburban area. And he's like, just concerned with his surroundings. And he's like, I shouldn't be here. Somebody's not gonna like that. I mean, Like I'm going to, you know, and then the music comes in and you slowly start feeling that dread. And in the same instance, when you're watching it as an audience member, it's so layered how your reaction should be of being like, oh, I see where he's coming from. And then being like, but I, as a human being, I should not see where he's coming from. Why is it like this? And present day society, you know, like, there's so much webbed and weaved throughout this movie that I think this is a good pick, a good thing to talk about.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's smart as hell. I mean, as far and also, and also I would say game changer, because it opened the door for so many more people of color to start telling these stories in in the horror movie tropes.
2: I think the first time that you're on our show, Emily, Lee texted me afterwards, it was like, D- does she understand that we're on the same side much more than you are, Spro? about like our political leanings and everything like that. What I love about Get Out is it's mainly about liberal racism. If you read like the interviews and the audience reaction, especially the African-Americans in the audience, they were like, Everything that the main character was going through is something that we have felt ourselves. Like when you go over to, you know, white girlfriend's parents' house and immediately you just get hounded with questions and and they try to be as non-racist as possible and be like, I would have voted for Obama a third time and stuff like that. The way that he connected with both sides of the audience was amazing. was genius, I would say. But this isn't about conservative racism. This is about the other side.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting the way that he uses that sort of disarming, like, my dad would have voted for Obama for a third term. And I only tell you this because he's more than likely going to bring it up and want to talk about it with you. And it's going to be weird, but it doesn't make him anything except a nerdy dad or a, a dorky dad. I forget how she puts it. It's this disarming notion that you don't have to worry about them. They are allies in the end, and they're not. And I fell into that trap. Even when they started doing the silent auction, I was like, okay, so I don't trust the family anymore. Obviously, you never trust the little brother who feels like he's doing a Brad Pitt impersonation. Does that feel like that to anybody else when he's drunk, sitting at the table, and he's talking? He sounds like fucking Brad Pitt. Anyway, I still trusted Rose even after the silent auction. I'm like, that moment where he's like, you're all I have. I'm not going to leave you behind. And she's like, let's go. I'll make something up. It's like, I thought of my own significant other and I'm like, she would do that exact thing for me if I was having a flip out and I needed to FO. So it sucked me in. And then the minute that she flips the script on him, I was like,
6: fucking
3: bitch. I don't, I don't know man there there is a part of me that I I keep also hesitating to share a lot of my thoughts about it cuz we're a bunch of white people I can't ignore that fact and and think it's worth saying if uh if we're going to be talking about it you know that we are looking at this through how it affected us in our eyes but I think I'd I'm be more interested black. to hear oh. <sighs>
0: Man. Well, I mean, can you go along with it? Our listeners don't know what other.
3: Not, I'm I mean, we're all Eastern go African. I could,
0: I could be black. No one knows
3: I'm not I'm, I know And I'm gonna <laughs> go ahead and say You are not
0: I mean I, I see what you're saying I don't know that that precludes us From having an opinion on a film
3: Oh absolutely not But I think it's worth mentioning Because this is So specifically A black man story I don't know I, I just think it's It's worth mentioning And worth saying And worth putting out there Into the
0: world I don't want to is- speak for Jordan Peele But I think He wanted Especially the white people To watch it and go Damn
2: yeah. Well, I think it was to like to show, you know, like if you are looking at Bradley Whitford, if you're like, oh, I said some of these things that Bradley Whitford said, you know, it could make life hard or uncomfortable. No, to hold people on. Around you. and
3: that's and that's also part of the genius of it is that there's so much that like as a white bleeding heart liberal, I'm like, oh, God, I've said that. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, listen, I'm not saying we can't have an opinion on it, but I think it's worth mentioning that we are white people giving our opinion on it. I don't I mean, identify as all. white, so... Please stop me. Oh, okay? I really need you to fuck off right now. <laughs> I
2: don't subscribe to white, black. I think that's a segregationist theory.
3: You know, we, we have to recognize people of color that they have had a different experience than us and that there is systemic racism. And that's why it's important to point this stuff out.
0: Yeah, but then you're not making it about me. And that's, <laughs> that's there what I want.
2: <laughs> no, I just don't there want you. to prejudge anything based off the tone of somebody's skin.
3: I can, I can, uh, tell me more about that.
2: A person that is raised in the flatlands of Wyoming has a completely different experience than somebody that is raised in the city of Miami, correct? Sure. So you know nothing about the person on either field based off of solely anything that you're seeing visually, correct?
3: Uh, Well, here's the thing. (laughs) If someone is black or brown, or any other color than white, I am going to assume that they have had some sort of racism, regardless of where they live or where they grew up, uh, impact their lives. Why? Why? Because uh, colonialism, uh, (laughs) slavery, um, our entire history and the systems that are built upon it are white supremacist. And it's pretty much impossible, regardless of privilege, to not have that affect you, even in just an everyday environment encounter in your life. I mean, yes, absolutely. Money, status, how you grow up is going to change different things, but there are always going to be people who are just, color is going to affect them.
2: Right. You're going to have the ignorance of the world. But in the same instance, if you look at it, like, where do you want to go as a society? Do you want it to
0: go somewhere where like everybody is treated equal?
3: No, I want it where people are treated Equitably.
0: Okay. Just remember what Bill Burr tells us. We're all out here eating a big shit sandwich. Okay. That is true, Lee. Do you not like difficult conversations? I think, no. I think this is these are good conversations to have. Mm-hmm. I, I, I recognize that there's, <laughs> but he's so like nervous. Sounding. I'm not I nervous. Know. I'm not nervous. I find it a waste You're of time, sure. and I know that that's wrong. Oh I know my god, I, why? I'm just gonna say I know uh, that
3: that's
4: wrong.
0: Ew. I know that you. I know that these <laughs> discussions. <laughs> I know that these discussions need to happen. That these topics need to be aired out. Um, I just don't want to be a part of it. <laughs>
3: You gotta have these conversations. You gotta be part of these conversations.
0: No, I don't. Can we fucking get back to Get Out, please?
3: how uncomfortable can we make lee during this <laughs> i okay, i appreciate he's... the conversation Spro. i'm i'm here for it any time and i respect you and i'm glad we can talk about these things
0: <laughs> i don't respect Absolutely. either of you and i'm not here <laughs> next for time it. let's not invite lee so we can right. have a
3: conversation Jeez, okay <laughs> we gotta we gotta wrap this up though too i got a crying Finn upstairs I feel like, Lee's like
0: an eight-year-old um, at the table like yeah. slamming his fork down i <laughs> am Pay attention to me. All right. (laughs) What do we got? I don't know if it deserves best picture. I'm happy to give it best picture. I just think of all the awards it didn't get. I think it should have been best director. I think the eye, I think Peele's eye that was. I think everything that he had building up to making this. I think this movie had been in his blood for just years. I think he was seeing it in his sleep, and it shows. Every single shot, every sequence is so meticulously crafted. I, I would I would have gone for best director, but you said best picture or director, so we didn't have a picture, so I, I went with picture. I'd be cool with either.
3: I'd be down with best director too, like, and maybe that's even more. Appropriate appropriate because I mean, yeah you're right this was this was so in his blood this was so just like everything was so crafted we were so taken care of and i think we all took it for granted because we we're like oh we're just walking into a horror movie and then it it mm-hmm. flipped our shit
2: i don't know i think i would lean more toward best picture mainly because like i always say best picture should talk to us on a social level like it should point out something about our society to ourselves where shape of water really did not
3: i would disagree with you on shape of water i think it does make us look at our because it's that whole fear of the unknown fear of the strange
2: but could you get like i could not get past the
3: fact that i was just
2: watching the creature from the black lagoon and then there was fish sex
3: and i was there for the fish sex <laughs> it was well done <laughs>
0: all of the universal monsters are in some way, shape, or form, some sort of fear of the unknown and yeah. subconscious, subconscious fear of the other, yada, yada, yada,
3: yada. Fear yada. of the other, fear of ourselves, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I was
2: just trying to say, I think your Get Out pick was a good pick for <laughs> Best Picture.
3: Don't get me wrong, I still, I still would do Get Out over Shape of Water, even though I thoroughly enjoyed both movies and think they had a lot to say.
2: I mean, it would make more sense, like, when we talk about, like, the lay audience, considering the fact that when you bring up Shape of Water, like, to a Hancock of the world or something, they'd be like the the fish sex movie you know like where get out people be like that was a great year you know
3: that's so sad that the fish sex like took so many people out of it because like I mean I thought it was it was a great eventuality that I mean you're you're going to explore a relationship between two people uh, or two beings <laughs> <laughs> and, and a romantic relationship and the specificity of their or just even honoring that they had a sexual relationship I thought was cool yeah
0: she's using I mean, like, her words very carefully there right you put
2: anything Thing, like in place of the creature from the Black Lagoon monster in Shape of Water and it's going to be that sex. But like you could put Goofy in and be like the Goofy sex movie. Yeah, the Goofy <laughs> sex movie. Like, here,
0: here's my last kiss hug, kiss hug to Get Out and us, quite frankly, not us as in us three, but his sophomore effort, us. He casts so well and directs his actors so well. I think there isn't a false performance in Get Out. I think the closest it comes is his TSA friend but obviously you gotta have some sort of comedic relief I don't know I think it cheapens some of the horror when he's like T.S. motherfucking A I think it cheapens yeah. some of it a little bit but it's a funny cute little like button on the end of the movie but he casts and directs actors so well uh, and that's another reason why Nope is doo doo well thank you very much for coming on Emily get out for best picture and best director how's that sound
3: hey I'm here for it There we go
0: Joining us for this next segment is our friend and frequent guest, MC. We asked MC the exact same question in the movie that he threw our way. It's streaming on Netflix right now. It's called Pihu. This is an Indian film that tells the true story of a young girl who finds herself alone in a house. And when I say young girl, I mean a lethal girl. This is like a two-year-old girl whose father is away at work and whose mother unexpectedly passes away. Let's put it that way. MC has cast his lot in on this one for best director. The director of the film is Vinod Capri. So, MC, this isn't technically a horror film, but it is in many ways terrifying. Tell me about your experience watching this movie.
1: I stumbled upon this movie as my wife was watching it. She was kind of in like a position on the couch where I don't know that I've ever quite seen. And it was one of those, like, if you can imagine clutching a pillow, not blinking eyes wide, kind of the the expression and like the position that you would associate with the phrase, what the fuck? So, I sat down, watched it, and sort of snapped her out of her trance long enough for her to explain to me what had happened in the film so far. And it was very early. So, it was just kind of babies left alone, basically, was the, the log line that she gave me. And when you guys asked me for a horror movie, of course, my mind went to the place that everybody else's mind goes to. Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, Texas Chainsaw, all those things. And I I couldn't legitimately consider those films, not that they're not great, but they don't scare me. The gore might make me cringe and wince and things like that. The supernatural elements, while they might be eerie, it's not a sense of terror. And if we're talking about a horror movie in the context of best something, best in the entire landscape of film, I really wanted to examine the concept of fear. Fear, number one, is one of the more subjective emotions. I think fear, above all the other emotions that a director can get you to feel while watching a movie, I think is is probably the most difficult. It's more than just jump scares. It's more than just creepy-looking monsters. Fear is a genuine sense of paralyzing dread that I had not experienced in a movie until I watched this movie. It has nothing to do with the supernatural. There are no killers, no, you know, who done it aspects, but all of the other elements of horror movies essentially are Completely and I would argue masterfully demonstrated throughout this just insane unfolding of events. This movie that I literally stumbled upon gripped me in a way that I don't think another movie has done so and it was completely through that evocation of fear. Which, in my opinion, that's what a good horror movie does. I think the, the best word that you came out with was dread.
2: That's exactly what I felt during the whole watching of this movie. Off air, I was talking to Lee and I was like, it's like Requiem for a dream for me. I only need to see it once because you're not going to have that feeling again, seeing the second time. And I feel like if I watch it a second time, I'm going to be looking, I guess, for the strings, you know, like the magic behind like how they did it, how they crafted the story around a four year old little girl. And I like the fact that we're looking at it as best directing, considering the fact that the production behind it, for what Wikipedia says, is director Vinod Capri said that the idea behind making the film was the question of what does a toddler do when she is left alone at home? He also based it on a real-life incident that he read in 2014 in a national daily about a four-year-old girl who was left alone at home. He decided to have minimal dialogues in the film, wanted the story to depend on how the girl behaves, and felt that every shooting schedule was unpredictable. Though the girl had Never acted before, Capri is close friends with her parents, so they agreed for her to act on this project. The film was shot for two hours a day with three cameras placed on the set since Capri felt you can't ask a two year old to give another take. So, pretty much, it was almost like a documentary style film that may or may not have worked, <laughs> you know, if all the pieces didn't fall into place as they did. I feel this movie would traumatize
1: me if I was a parent watching it. The The underlying element of a horror movie is that it's creating tension. And then, you know, the tools with which the directors create that tension include like the lighting, you know, if you've got like creature effects and stuff like that, sounds, everything that you you think of when you think of a horror movie is all designed to create tension. And I can't think of another movie where more tension and more high stakes tension was created on screen than this movie. So if we consider this a horror film, what's so cool about it is there's
0: no antagonist. I don't even know what you would consider the antagonist. The little girl is both the protagonist and the antagonist because she's the one getting herself into these situations obviously not doing it for any other reason than she's young and she's curious and explorative and unlearned. I think the hardest part for me, and there's a bunch of difficult parts, but the hardest part for me was where she was taking the pills off of the ground and holding them up to her mom and going, mommy, can I try one? And then she proceeds, she eats one. And then she's like, can I have more? Can I have another one? And she eats like three of these, what are presumably sleeping pills. And then she's just comatose but there are just so many moments i wanted someone to intervene i wanted to, i wanted to intervene i was like please someone help this girl
1: so the one thing i i agree with is that there's no antagonist on screen and i think that's why this movie's so fantastic because the antagonist is your own brain being afraid of things that are both unfamiliar and familiar if you're afraid of heights it's not because you're afraid of being on a tall building it's because you're afraid that you're going to fall Or you're remembering a time in your life when maybe you did fall from someplace higher and it hurt and you broke your arm and it was traumatic. You're afraid of the trauma that you've already experienced. Like you're afraid of the stuff that's already happened to you and you're translating that into the experience that you're having at that moment. With this movie, there's no on-screen antagonist, but everything that is going on in your head when you're watching it is suggestive of just these terrifying things. Like, even if you, and I would imagine a lot of people thankfully don't know a little girl who was in this situation before, you've either read something similar or you've heard something or you've, you know, maybe even imagined something to that extent. And it's that manipulation that your brain presents to you that makes you so terrified. The purpose, I think, of horror movies is to make like the things that we don't want to talk about, things that aren't comfortable to talk about, it makes those things accessible. Death, fear, torture, all that kind of stuff. It makes those things accessible because, quote, it's only a movie. And then this movie just does that on such a harrowing scale that, again, for me, it was... I don't want to say a life changing event, but like I, I'll never forget watching that movie and being like, what is going to happen? Is the director going to let this go where it could possibly go, which is to the terrifying conclusion that in your worst fears you're imagining? Or is this going to be a moment where you go, whew, and you kind of wipe the sweat from your brow? I had to look it up partway through. I was like, I, I, it was like
0: watching Free Solo. The documentary about that kid that climbed El Capitan at Yosemite National Park. He I mean, climbs all over the place. Did you ever see that documentary?
1: I have not, no. Although I know what you're talking about. I was like, I got to know what happens at the end of this. This is, it was killing You me. spoiled it for
0: yourself? Yes, it was killing me. <laughs> when she went out on the balcony, I was Oh like, yeah, I can't take this. That I was I the worst part for
1: me. For me, the, the balcony was like, that was the moment where I was like, will she or won't she? On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 70%
2: from the critics and a 72% from the audience score, but you can tell that it's actually the horror element that turned off The crit because there's only 10 reviews. Three of them are rotten. Two of the rotten reviews has the word sadistic in it. It feels sadistic and unnecessary, a silly sadistic and torturous experience. The fact that these people feel like they have been offended by this film that is really what would happen if a two to four-year-old was trapped alone for, I think it's like over the course of like three days or so.
1: Like these people are just angry that this film exists. I think silly and sadistic describes Saw, hostile, all that shit. Yeah. Hell, hell yeah.
2: Well, I feel like the critics were protecting themselves, you know, by writing it off as like Maybe. Oh God, like I could've I couldn't watch it. Obviously they were just trying to traumatize me and da 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 and just putting up that wall where it's like, if you let this film in,
1: you're not gonna forget this film. Horror is a lot of what ifs. What if you go in this door instead of this door? What if you go down the basement instead of out the front? What if you take the wrong turn in the woods? Like This is a what if scenario almost completely, almost completely devoid of actual choice because all this is, is instinct on the part of a two year old. You know, like a two year old, as intelligent as a two year old might be, you know, as capable as a two year old might be that's still, you know, the stage in life where they're trying to essentially just meet basic needs. So, this this little girl, you know, rummaging her way around the apartment, the dangers were slowly like revealed, you know, and they were all dangers that were not Outlandish, nothing crazy or unbelievable. This wasn't like seeing Georgia get sucked into the sewer and it. You know, like this wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna go chase my stupid boat down the drain and a clown's gonna eat my arm. This was like a little girl <laughs> trying to survive just by being a little girl. And I mean, I, I don't know. I realized that, you know, technically, as technically as Wikipedia can be and um IMDB, that it's not classified as a horror movie, but this is the scariest fucking movie I've ever seen.
0: Yeah. I mean, Georgie getting his arm ripped off and this killer clown, it's easy to write that off. Even if it scares you in the moment and you're like, oh shit. The gore, which is one of the characteristics that's so associated with the horror genre. There's got to be death. There's got to be gore. And there's got to be some kind of thing, a person or an entity of some kind pursuing our protagonists. Those are really binding. And I think people have blinkers on
1: gore suspense and shock and all those things are lazy qualifiers for a horror movie. Because if you want to talk about gore, I can show you 10 action movies that are incredibly gory. I can show you drama movies that are gory. If you want to talk about suspense, I can show you drama movies that had me on the edge of my seat. The only thing the only thing that separates horror movies as a genre from all the other movies with clarity and with absolution is fear. Every other element you can find in another type of movie. You can find gore, you can find suspense, you can find thrills, you can find mystery, all that stuff you can find across genres. Fear is the only thing that exists exclusively in horror movies. And like I said, this movie put the fear of God in me like nothing I've ever watched before or since. This has always been on the short
2: list for second chance cinema. And I think that I almost want to tell our audience to go watch Pihu based off of MC's recommendation here on Saltota Spro and Lee Take on the Academy and then pop over
1: to Second <laughs> Chance Cinema where we where we uh so, Wait a minute. Salt- after you watch it we will spoil it. Saltotas Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. That's awesome. <laughs> Saltota <laughs> Except I do like Bro- <laughs> Well that's cuz you put some
0: kind of an uh, an accent on it where you are like Saltota. That's awesome. That was
2: great. <laughs> I want to keep discussing this but we have a whole lot of horror movies to get to this episode so i feel like let's have our audience watch it and then meet us all three of us over at second
1: chance cinema for a good idea to really dive into like the ending and and everything the quick and dirty of it is that this is a fucking scary movie. And I think that more than anything, it's easy to lose sight of that element of horror when you're talking about horror movies.
0: Thank you so much for bringing this one to the fore. Absolutely. And it was
1: a pleasure to revisit the scariest movie I've ever watched and think about it for a week. <laughs> oh, God. I, I don't think I'll ever rewatch this one. <laughs> Now that you know kind of what happens, like Spro said before, it could be interesting to rewatch it with all that in mind so that you can actually look and see exactly what a master manipulator the director is. Like, there are things that you'll probably pick up when you're not just biting your fingernails down to the bloody stumps.
4: Yeah,
0: that's another thing, too. That one of the criticisms I heard of the film was that the direction is clearly manipulative. It's like, what direction isn't?
1: I fart in that criticism's general direction. <laughs> not to
0: mention they went out of their way to make sure that the little girl kind of could just do her own thing. But whatever, people are dumb dums
1: Anyone who's ever tried to wrangle a toddler to do anything, <laughs> to do anything, like to watch fucking Cars 3, anyone who's ever tried to do that is an aspiring director. And anyone who can actually get a child to go through the motions of doing something as involved and as ridiculous and as insane as this movie, I think that that deserves consideration. Well, if you like MC's opinions,
0: he proliferates them on the Second Chance Cinema podcast, which he co-hosts with my co-host on this show Spro or you can listen to him on the Mount Rushmore podcast where he and Spro and another friend of the show Rudy and another gentleman named Jeremy all sit down and negotiate the best of the best of all variety and manner of pop culture so one more time big thank you to MC for coming on thank you for recommending this movie and we hope to talk to you again soon
1: I loved it thanks guys
0: Our next guest is Mr. Joe Lewis. Joe, thanks for coming back again so soon to weigh in on the horror genre. Well, thanks for having me again guys. That episode that you were on was maybe one of my favorites, not one of my favorites to have to edit and truncate <laughs> you speak as though you are a coke addled freak, but I know you're not.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll just keep that mystery unresolved for the direction Oh, okay, <laughs> alright. <laughs> yeah.
0: So as with everybody else, we posed the following question to you. What's a horror movie you felt was overlooked by the Academy? You submitted Alan Parker's Angel Heart i'd like you to tell start maybe start by telling us a little bit about the movie and why it's so close to your angel heart
5: oh sure well you've got mickey Rourke is a kind of this dirty grimy private eye gets hired by this mysterious attorney who represents robert de niro's character and he gets hired to find this this musician who's kind of just disappeared over time and he's looking for a johnny favorite this musician that has some kind of mysterious contract with De Niro that doesn't really go explain. He's very vague about it, but kind of sends him on this journey, this really dark journey, not just through New York City, but down in the deep south in Louisiana, in New Orleans, and lots of voodoo, lots of devilish practices. But the book the, the story was originally based on um on a book by William Hortzberg that was written in the seventies and then didn't make the New York Times bestseller until the actual movie. Angel Heart came out and uh, the book itself was called Fallen Angel it's the same author who did the book for Rollerball with James Caan and then he wrote the screenplay for Legend which was the Tom Cruise and Unicorns movie so yeah really talented writer and then you had Alan Parker who had done Pink Floyd the Wall he did Mississippi Burning I think the next year but yeah I mean I I love this film and specifically I love Rourke's performance just because I think this is Rourke's go-to performance if you're looking at his repertoire just kind of showing his range you know you're showing like the dirty gritty Mickey work which he was accused on and off the set of being extremely difficult to work with, extremely unhygienic, and he really, you know, you get that sense when you're watching do Greasy. his little... Greasy. <laughs> Greasy and well, Kim Basinger, when he did Nine and a Half Weeks, Kim Basinger dubbed him the Human Ashtray, which is like, I, I would love to have a nickname like that, but uh, thus far, I missed out on that. But yeah, I guess you know, he was usually inebriated on the set, difficult to work with, but so talented that directors still wanted to work with him despite all that. So, I elicited this, this great performance from him, you know, especially the realization at the end where he is that final confrontation with De Niro. And you're like, dude, you know, it's just a horror film that that takes itself, takes the subject matter very seriously. A lot of people argue that it's not a true horror film. They say it's more of like a, kind of like a mystery horror. I'm like, I'm sorry, but like anytime, you know, you've got voodoo orgies popping up. I mean, you're, you're not flirting with horror territory. You are a Can I stop film. you there? Yeah. This is a topic that is
0: coming up in several conversations okay. with other people on the show. How do you define the borders of the horror genre? because I don't know if this is a horror. I'm not sure if this constitutes a horror in the same way that I wouldn't categorize David Fincher's Seven as a horror. Mm -hmm.
5: Sure, it certainly has other, I mean, it has the detective genre in it as well. I mean, you get horror mise-en-scene throughout the film, but it's not really until the last third where it's really like, okay, boom, you're a horror film. It explicitly deals with the supernatural. There's no like Mm -hmm. between the lines. I like that it kind of slowly reveals that to you it's not like right from the very beginning like hey it's a Freddy Krueger movie so I know what this is gonna be it's all part of the mystery it's kind of Harry Angel's journey about right. finding out like what kind of movie is this he thinks it's just a detective story just like the audience does yet we're constantly hit with imagery of voodoo worship you've got voodoo practices you have like this very strange like flashbacks this very like bloody ritual and then you're still like okay is this like in his head like how, how does this add up to what he's looking for and then in the end you know it's, it's for sure a horror film I think anything that touches with the supernatural, you know, religious imagery like the devil, things like that, you're in horror territory. And I mean in the last scene and him taking the elevator right down to hell, I mean, that's not like, oh, I think this is, you know, maybe this is a comedy drama. It's it's, it's very clearly a horror film and in a, in a a self-serious one, which, you know, is it gets some shit for that too, strangely enough. Well, I think it's, when people like think about horror, they think
2: about like, you know, Slasher in the Woods or sure. Ghosts in the Attic or anything like that. I think right. Wikipedia laid it perfectly describing it as neo-noir psychological horror film. I think it has all of those elements to it. The film that this reminded me of is a film that I saw four times in the theater trying to get my buddy to come see it with me. He oh, kept Titanic? saying he was going to come see it. No, no. <laughs> we kept making plans to go see this one particular film in the theater, and I kept going to see the film in the theater, and he kept standing me up. Finally, like, the third or fourth time, he actually entered the theater and sat with me, and I was like, you son of a bitch. Lee, <laughs> do you remember what that film was? Devil's Advocate. <laughs> ah. And it was Lee who I He's kept an standing
4: landlord! <laughs>
5: ¿Qué <laughs> But, like, it dealt uh, with you know, never the, the devil, the you know? Yeah. Well, and, and it's great. Yeah, you get Pacino and – well, can I can I just blow the ending of, of, of Angel Heart or else? Yeah. Spoiler? Oh, spoiler. 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 Okay. Yeah. They both play, you know, the devil. So, you get, like, both of them, you get a different take on it. You get De Niro's kind of understated, smiling gentleman devil. And then you get Pacino's, like, always over the top. But, I mean, great. Both great takes. Like, I, but I love the reveal. And this was back before they were doing all the, the twist endings that, you know, I think the Sixth Sense really – Started And then every horror movie, every movie wanted to have that twist ending and everything. But Heart was released in uh, 87. So, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people who saw it coming, but then it was still kind of that shock, that twist ending where people are like, oh my God, they don't usually do that. It was more of a, I, I guess, more of an intellectual horror film than a lot of the other 80s horror films of that time period it was a huge slasher period you had all the Friday the yeah. 13th nightmare Gnome streets you know you had all those franchise the halloween franchise all of them plowing through and then you had this like kind of semi art house Like Angel Heart, which is, you know, very well written, it's obviously very violent, very sexual, but not in a very exploitative way. It's just kind of not afraid to show you some of the things. A lot of people remember Angel Heart just for kind of the shocking sex scene with Lisa Bonet that got her booted off the Cosby show. It's unfortunate because, yeah, it's a pretty shocking scene, but the rest of the movie is just so well done. And like I said earlier, it takes its subject matter very seriously. I think it's a class act film from beginning to end, but I think Rourke's performance, I I mean, I I think it was Oscar worthy. It's the film that made Aronofsky want to cast Rourke in The Wrestler, was his performance in Angel Heart. He's like, I liked him so much. I liked his rawness, his vulnerability, especially at the end, you know, the reveal, the realization of who he was after his long hunt.
2: You could like, you know, dissect everybody into three parts. I think this is his middle age part. And then The Ram is his final act. And then the first act- I don't know where he necessarily started from diner.
5: Yeah, it would be diner. It would be like Heaven's Gate or diner like one of those early 80s.
2: It's amazing to me how much Ryan Gosling is
5: just kind of like cut from Mickey Rourke's cloth. Yeah. Like a, he's like a Mickey Rourke without the baggage. He's like uh, a Mickey Rourke with a shower. With sho- a <laughs> shower. Without the heavy smoking and drinking. Although he may do that behind the scenes, I don't know. But like Rourke was notorious for bringing that onto the set. And, you know, ended up doing films like Harley Davidson the Marlboro Man just because he kept blowing all his money. So he was like, I just did it for the money. I hated the fucking movie. Ugh. You know. Obviously a very talented actor, but, a, you know, a very probably a very troubled dude in life where he just doesn't give a shit. That's, that would be Rourke. So... Alas...
4: How terrible is wisdom when it brings no profit to the wise, Johnny? Louis Cipher. Lucifer. (laughs) Even your name is a dime-star joke. Mephistopheles is such a mouthful of Manhattan, Johnny. Do
1: you think posing as the devil is because it scared some superstitious old guitar player and, and that witch? And
0: that nutty old man, you think it's gonna scare me? <laughs> it ain't.
6: Because I know who I am. And you killed them. And you're trying to pin it on me. And I know who I am.
1: If I had cloven hooves and a pointed tail, would you be more convinced? You're crazy. I know who I am. You're trying to frame me.
4: You're trying to frame me. Cypher, like
0: I know who I am murdered them people. I never killed no money. I didn't kill Fowler and, and I didn't kill Toots and I didn't kill Margaret and I didn't kill Cruz Mark. I didn't kill no
4: one. I'm afraid you did, Johnny.
1: My name's not Johnny.
4: All killed by your own hand. Guided by me, naturally. And frankly, you were doomed from the moment you slit that young boy in half for Johnny. For 12 years you've been living on borrowed time and another man's memories.
1: Hey, I'm going to tell Winesap because he knows. Winesap? Well, he's dead.
4: Nasty accident. Don't worry, no one will mourn one less lawyer in the world. There's death everywhere these days, Johnny. But what gives human life its worth anyway? Because someone loves it, hates it. The flesh is weak, Johnny. Only the soul is immortal. Yours belongs. Cleverly, you sneak up on a mirror. Your reflection always looks you straight in the eye. I got my out.
2: You brought up Lisa Bonet and the Cosby Show. It was actually Bill Cosby who encouraged her to do the movie. And it wouldn't be the first time that Bill Cosby encouraged somebody, a young woman, to have sex.
5: I'll, I'll, I'll you. Oh, yeah, this is a great script. You should totally do that. <laughs> you
0: to probably do that one. It seems like a good one. <laughs> <laughs>
5: But yeah, anyway, so I, I that believe that was um, that scene that got her booted. But, you know, she went on to, to do some other stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that was his last great film up until – Probably up until The Wrestler, where he was the lead, Cass is the lead anyway.
0: Angel Heart was another one of these movies that when you and I lived together, you were trying to get me to watch. And I did end up watching some of it, but a mutual friend of ours, the same one that recommended the backwards movie to me, Memento, ended up ruining it for me, ruining the ending. But he only ruined the fact that De Niro was playing, spoiler alert, Satan. There's some more reveals at the end. So if you're feeling as though we've spoiled Angel Heart for you. I still encourage you to watch it. In fact, I would say knowing that De Niro is Satan makes every time he shows up and interacts with Mickey Rourke that much more intriguing.
2: That wasn't like so off landish. Like the way that De Niro is shot with the cane and everything and just sitting in the chair, you know, and like the, the long fingernails. Make, yeah. The, the super long. You're like, this dude's a vampire. Ugh, or you, you know, my like- eggs
0: with those fingernails too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: there was other things and maybe we're spoiling the fact that there are other things because the fact that i was like that dude's something and we're gonna figure out that out and then when we do find out that louis cipher is uh homophone for lucifer i was like that's it and then everything else started i was like oh shit <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I didn't even like realize like there's weird things that
5: happen throughout the movie where you're like, that's weird. And then they explain it at the end. And you're like, oh. So you've got like a period piece detective horror film. So you've got a lot of things going on. I just love the way it's photographed. I love the Trevor Jones score. I love, you know, that piano from the song that you hear kind of sprinkled throughout the film until you hear the full song at the end. It just brings the whole film together. It's such a classy horror film. It's a much more non-traditional horror film. I think that's one of the reasons why I like it so much is that it just kind of explores different avenues news that traditional at least traditional 80s horror did not. I think it was much more in line with like the horror of the 70s and late 60s like the Rosemary's Baby when they were exploring a lot more religious horror and 80s is like hey we're going to just go with the slasher thing. But, you know, a few gems did pop up in the 80s and I think this was one of them. What do you guys think? I'm a
0: sucker for Detective stories, even ones that are maybe not super well done like Hollywood Homicide, but (laughs) I enjoyed it. You have him interacting with so many people, so many bit parts that are cast so well, starting in New York and then going down to New Orleans. New Orleans is just so photogenic. Oh,
2: my
5: gosh. I love New Orleans. That's like one place in America where I'm like, this is completely different. For sure. And it's a great setting for a horror film because, you know, you've just got so much history there, a lot of dark history. And it just
2: feels like old European, right? Like because of like the French influence and everything. So it's almost like you're in America, but you're kind of in France, you know, so you can bring up like all the old traditional horror stories of like vampires and stuff like that. Absolutely. That's why Anne Reisler live there but the uh this took me three tries though to get in and I want to be honest with that because I told Lee I was like this is hard for me and I think because one I imbibe way too much media but the other thing is this goes back to pure 80s filmmaking which is one of my favorite eras but in the same instance they're usually slow-boiled or more character focused than what we got now I needed to switch my brain on to the 87 so i like just jumped on a treadmill and read subtitles and everything as it was getting into it. And by the time it was in New Orleans, I was like, yes. You are into it, waiting for the reveal of what Robert De Niro was. It was also weird because what is his beginning credit? I saw it three times. I should know. Guest appearance.
5: That's it. Special appearance by Robert De Niro. And I was like, it he's was in this special. movie. Yeah, and he's not it's not just a cameo. I mean, he's got some great little scenes there, but maybe his contract demanded, like you say it's special. I don't know. <laughs>
2: His first scene, you don't glean much from it. So I was like, Hmm. was that it? And I was like, I'm going to be pretty pissed off if that's the only time I see Robert De Niro and nothing is explained about why that man has the most back raking fingernails I have ever seen (laughs) on a human being. So were Um, were you
5: satisfied by the reveal? Were you satisfied by the film? By the end,
2: I was like, this was a great film. I think this is the one sh- uh, movie on this episode that most of our audience probably has not seen, and so I encourage you to get the seven free day trial of Stars and see this film.
5: Well, Best Buy just released a really nice steel box of Angel Heart. I think just the other month. So
2: Best Buy, I know. I didn't realize Best Buys were still a thing. They're I still, know, a thing? I know.
5: They're still a thing. They still have their own exclusive steel books for some odd reason. I guess that's like their last gasp for competition against what is it like Shout Factory and. Uh, Criterion and stuff. So, yeah, they have their own exclusive Angel Heart Steelbook, which actually looks really nice. I'm so glad you guys liked it. That's my favorite. I think it
0: would have been more effective if I also had a thing with chickens. Ah. No, I'm just playing. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think it was incredibly well filmed. I don't know that I would have picked the same award, but it's not about me.
4: That's right. Do you
0: want to argue a different award? Because I argued a different award with one of our guests. Yeah, why would you- Oh, I would say cinematography, 100%.
5: Okay, yeah. That was one of the ones I would consider, if not for Rourke's performance. I think it's beautifully, beautifully photographed, Like especially once it gets down south. There's just so many great sh- – and I love all the the flashback, the shadow of the fan, the slow-moving fan that you see kind of like again and again. Just the lighting in it is just great. And it's pure horror lighting in some of that. There's no mistaking – it's kind of like that noir lighting where there's just a lot of shadow. There's a lot of like blue light and shadow. Uh, it's a great-looking film, and it sounds great too. It's just, it's just, just one great. of It's <laughs> <laughs> It's fucking it's great. So, it's, it's so great.
0: It's just one of those movies that now I've I've watched it once, but I can see the photography in my head like it's playing in front of me. Yeah. If a film can make that kind of an indelible impact on me visually, I would always... Give that to the director of photography.
5: Right on. I, since I was only limited to one Oscar, I chose Rourke's acting. But I'd say the cinematography is right up there. I think of the all the 80s horror films I've seen, as far as cinematography, I'd say this and then The Hitcher with Rucker Hauer, my two favorite photograph films, horror films of the 80s.
0: The Hitcher is another one you made me watch in college. Yes.
5: But that's a much more traditional kind of cat and mouse chase in the desert without the the twist. But uh, beautifully photographed by John Seale. But um, Angel Heart's just like every single aspect of it. I think it's just so beautifully done.
2: Did you find it difficult to get Lee to watch a movie with you as I did back in the day, or was
5: um, it, he just? There, he was just hates couple, me? there was a couple. There was a couple that needed some arm wrestling, and I lost this one. <laughs> this is one of the ones <laughs> I lost. Spro, is that are you, so? You're saying that you also encountered some difficulty and resistance when it came to showing Lee some? Yeah, uh, I just. I'm not film. as pretty as girls were in high school. I guess I was just like, uh, hey, let's go. Let's so go hard see hard a movie. Well, you know, see
2: Titanic. That's a fair.
5: That's cop. Time. That's permissible.
0: Thank you for your recommendation, Joe. It's always nice. Nice to have you on. I hope we can have you on again in the future. You Definitely. are a loquacious guest and you know what the fuck you're talking about, which are two of the best qualities for a podcast guest. Joe hey, said you
2: wanted a
5: nickname. We could call him Coked Up Joe. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it, what, is, is there some cocaine qualities that I bring to the podcast that I was unaware of previously? <laughs> well, I think you, you
0: must make your coffee very strong.
5: I just had one cup. I'm, uh, I'll have number two when I'm done with the podcast, but I'm looking oh. forward to it. Cup of I mean, Joe? I I like Cup of Joe. Cup of Joe. Joe. Cup uh, of Joe I Ooh, see what you did good. there mm.
4: yeah.
0: All right Thank you for coming on Thank you for sharing Your expertise And and listeners Check out Angel Heart Yes Starring Mickey Rourke And directed by Alan Packer. Packer.
5: Thanks Joe Hey thanks guys A cube 26 rooms high
3: and 26 rooms across
5: 17,576
2: rooms Does anybody remember how they got here?
5: Then why would they throw innocent people in here? Are we being
4: punished? There's a
2: way in here, so there's got to be a way out Do you think they'd go to all the trouble to build this thing if we could just
4: walk out? Take a good long look around I got a feeling it's looking at us We have about three days without food and water before we're too weak to move
3: We just want to wake up
4: Looks no room down there, and something almost cut my head off. Motion detectors integrated into the walls. Tough to spot.
2: You're not getting out of here. Yes, we
4: are. There is no way out of here. We need to get around
6: the trap. They're identified by prime numbers. We'll figure it out.
4: I can't. I'm not dying in a rat maze.
1: No more talking. No more guessing. You got to save yourselves from yourselves. never
4: moving in circles the runes have we are the king the is us
0: our next guest is lawrence how art thou i'm well how are you guys pretty good pretty good pretty good pretty good i'm good thank you for asking you might be the only guest that asked about us <laughs> we asked you the same question that we asked everybody what is a horror film that is near and dear to your heart that you believe was overlooked by the Academy Awards. And you gave us Cube, which came out in 1997, was made for 350 grand estimated, but raked in almost 10 million on that very small budget. What is it about this movie, Lawrence,
4: that you find so lasting and appealing? I just like the idea behind it. A small group of people thrown together, total strangers in this same prison, and uh, they have to figure a way out. And I like the themes that are behind the story writing of it too. Such as? The theme of chaos. I mean, I guess we could dive into it deeper later in the discussion, but the idea that there's no grand conspiracy behind things. I'm so sick and tired of all of these people talking about child molesting, cabal, you know, whatever. The Illuminati. Yeah, all that nonsense. One of the prevailing themes of the story is that it's just a headless blunder. It is just a boundless human stupidity. The
0: script in particular, the way it's structured with these strangers that come together, made me think of the existential philosopher Jean-Paul Salt who wrote a play called No Exit, which I think I suggested to you, I doubt highly, you were able to get around to it, did you? I did not. I didn't even really get a chance to read much of the script of Cube. I just rewatched the movie. Okay. Well, Spro's going to take you to task for that one, being as he is our screenwriter (laughs) extraordinaire. But the prevailing notion behind No Exit is or if you know if you ask somebody about it they'll say oh right hell is other people and the idea that hell isn't this kind of like what you just said there isn't a bunch of people running around with pitchforks and and hooves burning you and and putting you on racks and torturing you hell is being put into a room that you can't leave with people you don't like who manipulate you or
4: lie to you or expose you. How so? Expose you for what you really are. Mm. There's some powerful moments in that story where the supposed good guy is exposed, at least possibly exposed for what he really is. Why do you spark to that? Just because it breaks down that idea of the white knight. When you first start watching the film, it seems very clear who the quote unquote good guy is going to be, the leader, the patriarch, so to speak. But as you get deeper into the film, you realize he is just as flawed, if not more so than everyone else in the prison. I like that. I like the idea of all of us being flawed and and all of us having to work together and overcome our differences and our flaws in order to solve problems together.
2: I always like it when films follow the three roles of the dramatics of ancient Rome, ancient Greece of just a contained environment, which this obviously is. Do we know how many days they're in there? It's somewhere in
4: between 1 and 2.
2: Yeah, with the dramatics it's supposed to be 24 hours, but like with this there's no rising sun, there's no setting sun or anything like that. And the problem is all pretty much contained as well. This isn't some sweeping adventure. I'm I'm with you, Lawrence. People are like, what's what's some of your favorite Marvel films? And I'm like, I dig the Ant-Man because the problems are so much smaller than these Avengers, where it's like, let's save the world. And then it's like, let's save the universe. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I'm like save a child. So I really like this one where it's like, we have to survive this. As Cube progresses, more and more psychological issues come to the forefront. Paranoia. It reminded me of Primer, if anybody out there has seen Primer, which is a science fiction film about time travel, where it's just so surprising how heightened the language is and and the problems that they're going
4: against is with this very self-contained, very low-budget horror film. That's why the screenplay is so masterful is because it was clearly written with a low-budget in mind and they pulled off just a fantastic film. It's frightening, it's claustrophobic, it's nerve-wracking because even if they make it out, what are they going to be when they get out of there? You know, how are they going to change as a result of it. And the end is particularly cool. I don't know if we're supposed to give that kind of thing away while we're talking about it, but the person or people who actually make it out is very surprising to me. Everything about the screenplay is a surprise to me. It broke down a lot of preconceived notions about film and society in general, which is why I chose screenplay as the Oscar it should have at least been nominated for. I thought it was brilliant.
0: I like when a film is contained meaning the setting of a film is very limited Mm -hmm. and i like it even more when everything all the mise-en-scene works together to make me forget that it is all taking place in one location and this movie does that really well as far as the screenplay is concerned i think that's the best thing about it the fact that they can keep these same characters engaging By making it fun to see who's going to come out on top in these arguments, who's going to reveal something new about themselves, or as you said, be exposed by someone else, who's going to end up being right and who's going to end up being wrong, and ultimately will they be able to get out? And who will get
4: out? It's more of a character study. It's less about the events, and it's more about the people. And this movie takes place in a 14 by 14 by 14 cell, and it literally never changes. They make you feel like it's changing as they move from one cell to the other within the cube. But the entire film was shot on one tiny set, which to make a film as compelling and as interesting and as scary and as nerve-wracking as this in just one tiny set is, that's masterful.
2: And I feel like this is a good spot to say I believe the Academy Award should be best production design. The script and the production design for Cube goes hand in hand because the script writer had to be like, alright, how do I make a low budget movie in a 14 by 14 set? A script writer did his job. Production design definitely did theirs because I don't know if you know whether or not this was just one
4: Cube that they reused over and over again or did they build side cube, you know, like I read that there were were two sets. One was an open wall set and the other one was a closed wall set for the tighter shots. They wanted all four walls. I believe when Mm -hmm. the movie first starts, there is an unnamed character who wakes up and they do like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what the shot is called, but where they literally walk all the way around the character so that like it's a full 360 pan. That would have been one of the sets. And then the other set is an open wall set if they wanted to shoot from further away.
2: Copy that. Watching it as person, I guess, in the industry that I am, like, I was like, Oh, my gosh, like, I need to come up with an idea like this. It's crazy to think that this is possible. And then you're kind of like, well, how can how can somebody else do it? But The screenwriting and the production design
4: absolutely went hand in hand for it to be pulled off as well as this. What is interesting is the original idea for the film was that, you know, it was going to be almost like Jumanji. Each room was going to be some sort of a different kind of a setting. And at some point they decided to strip it way back and make it much more sterile. And to even take away the character's abilities to get food or water. And I think it was a brilliant choice because not only did it make it much cheaper to make that way, but it made it much more tense. The survival theme was pushed right to the forefront. They have to get out because there's nothing in this place except for traps.
2: All right. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. We're going to talk about the ending now. So this is my major problem with screenwriting versus production design. And that is how the hell does the bad guy find them in the end?
4: Yeah, he's got to come back. How they executed it was a little difficult for me, too. The scene where Worth and Levin, the younger girl, they're talking. She's trying to convince him that life is worth living and that they should exit together. There is a third character in the room. So I guess it could be argued that the background sound, and you can hear the door to the room that they're in opening just before Levin gets murdered. Maybe that third character was fumbling about, but how did he actually get in? Because just before they found the exit, there was a shift of rooms. So again, you would have to suspend disbelief and just accept that he heard them nearby and found his way to them after the rooms shifted. Because there is a scene where Kazan, he gets left behind by mistake. His room shifts, but it doesn't shift far. They hear him having a conniption fit, and so Worth makes his way through two or three other rooms to find him and bring him back. It's a bit of a stretch that the quote unquote bad guy makes it to them, but it had to happen for dramatic. I mean, you got to have that climax at the end there. I think like the only way to like pretty much fix
2: that, it would be to show like one small little three second scene of him standing in a cube being like, what the fuck should I do? And then hearing them shouting out numbers and discussing
0: and him following. But that was like the only thing where I was like, what? One thing that I'll say about the ending, which again, still in spoiler territory, I like that they find at the end, please correct me if I'm wrong, but if they had simply stayed put in the first cube that they were in, they would have naturally been moved to the exit is that correct that is correct so all of the hardships that they endure not just the hardships but their collaboration and figuring out just what the numbers mean whether they were wrong or right and their joy in working together which unfortunately turns to resentment backbiting and infighting violence, all and violence thank you all of this could have been avoided if they had simply stayed put, it's almost as though chaos is 100% man-made.
4: And it reinforces that idea of, of human stupidity. One character, the Wren, the character that dies very quickly, he's like, you know, just keep moving. I'm going to keep moving. And they're all like, yeah, him. Yeah, let's do what he's doing. They don't ever stop to think, well, one character does. One character suggests that they stay put. But yeah, it's it, I love that theme of we are not as intelligent as we think we are it's almost like our big brains are a curse they cause us more problems mm. than they do solutions.
2: I was visiting Puerto Rico and they have a rainforest there. And I was like, oh, I want to go explore the rainforest. And I started exploring it and then got lost on a trail. And I was like, well, I'm just going to keep on going. And then there was like two other people who appeared behind me. And I was like, okay, I must be going the right way if they're with me. It took like 30 minutes of going in the wrong direction for me to turn around and realize they were following me because it, I looked like I knew where I was going. Uh-huh. And like, I didn't know. And it's. So I like a turn around is like I don't know where I am or where I'm going and they're like shit, should, should we all just turn around? And I was like, yeah. People mm. that are lost are going to follow the person that looks like they know what they're doing.
4: Again, spoiler alert here, big time, because I think it's one of the coolest ideas at the end of the film. The only character that makes it out is the quote unquote idiot savant, the one who doesn't really have any decision making abilities. He doesn't make it out because he is gifted. He makes it out because he has
0: people looking out for him and he's shepherded and, through.
4: And he's also not part of any any of the other drama that's going on. He's not part of the decision-making process. He's not part of the conflict. He's a total outsider. He is only a tool that they use to help them solve the riddle of the cube. I think this is a great one for filmmakers to go out and see
2: and whatnot and college students and everything. The way that this movie was put together with a great script and production design in mind to be able to be pulled off by a very capable, competent director is just what we need the Academy to recognize more of. There is so much more art and thinking and and budgeting that has to go in when you don't have $200 million to throw at a movie. And these films that have less than a million dollars that can keep you engaged and on the edge of your seat for 90 minutes
4: is amazing and needs to be rewarded. I think one of the reasons that this film didn't get the recognition it deserved, not just because it's low budget and kind of under the radar, but it probably for the same reasons that you mentioned when we talked about Best Picture, was it 1980, 1979? Apocalypse Now just completely passed over because it's a movie about despair, because it's a movie that does not celebrate humanity. It reviles it. Movies like this get passed over in a large part because they deal with very, quote unquote, negative themes. But I think it's important for us to, as human beings, to take a look in the mirror sometimes to check ourselves. We're not as divine as we think we are. We're just overdeveloped apes. And to place much more importance on ourselves gives us free reign to do what we want and to justify our actions. And that's why I love themes like chaos and and human despair, because it really says a lot more about the human race, in my opinion, than those feel-good movies do.
6: numbers. I can't believe I didn't see it before. See what? It seems like if any of these numbers
5: are prime then the room is trapped. Okay, um,
1: 645. That's not prime. 372. No.
6: 649. Right, 11 times 59. It's not
5: prime either. So that room is safe wait wait wait
4: how can you make that assumption based on one prime number trap
1: i'm not the incinerator thing was prime zero eight three the molecular chemical thingy had 137 the acid room had 149. you remember all that in your head i have a facility for it
4: levin you beautiful
5: brain Boot it. Okay, out of the way.
4: Right before beauty. Save. Save. <laughs> I highly recommend Cube Even if you're not a fan Of horror films This isn't a particularly Gory one It's not a particularly Scary one What it is Is a particularly Interesting horror film And it really makes you think And that's the kind of movies I enjoy the most So check it out Thanks Lawrence For helping us out With our horror show Thanks guys Have a good day You too Bye This is my home oh,
2: You look a little blurry man. Let me zoom out on you okay. okay Good morning Got it Okay I got you
3: This is my home Okay yeah. Which I am leaving the comforts of for the weekend to explore
0: the Blair Witch. Joining us now is a former guest on our show. He is also the host of the Vintage Baseball Podcast and one of the founding members of the Mount Rushmore Pod along with MC and Spro. His name is Rudy. How are you doing, Rudy? Hey, fellas. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. We asked everybody, we said, what's a horror movie that you feel like was overlooked by the Academy? Uh, A horror movie that has really stuck to your guts. And you came at us with The Blair Witch Project, which, you know, if you go online and you search for the most profitable films of all time based on return of investment or based on budget, you'll get a glut of different lists with movies like Paranormal Activity, Facing the Giants, Mad Max, El Mariachi, one film that often makes these lists is The Blair Witch Project from 1999. What is it about this movie that uh, that tugs at your at your fear strings? That's not a thing. But <laughs> what, what, what is it about this one that still gives you goosebumps, Rudy?
6: <laughs> I'm going to answer your question and I'm going to start off with a question. Spro, what were you thinking when you heard that they were going to we re- were going to reach out to me about a horror movie? <laughs> well, I thought it was an interesting pick
2: by Lee to reach out to my old college roommate, Rudy, for a horror pick Because look, you sat in a tattoo chair and you got yourself some tattoos, which takes, you know, perseverance and some pain (laughs) tolerance. But I don't know you as the stereotypical tough guy man when it comes to sitting down for a, a creepy horror film. I remember you leaving the room when we were playing horror video games, because you're like, that shit ain't for me. So because he was like, so I reached out to Rudy and I was like, man, that guy's gonna say like hocus pocus or something. Rudy can't handle or Lee is completely behind this whole horror show episode. This is his baby he's running with. And I was like, I'm excited to see what happens and what unfolds. And you know what, you brought a good
6: one to the table. So thank you So far, so good. Bro, Lee, I'm going to be completely transparent with you. Whenever it is a horror movie, something, I tap into growing up in the projects in the hood and my initial reaction is, hell nah. Nah, I'm good. I don't don't need that. Dark Alley? No, I'm good. Dark House? uh Uh-uh. What's that weird noise? I'm walking away. I don't investigate. So I picked the Blair Witch Project for a couple of reasons, mainly because it was in 1999, and I still think about that movie today. In the summertime, I run a summer camp. So I'm out in the woods for May, June, July, and most of August. If I'm ever out there when the sun goes down, oh, uh, it's the only thing going through my head. Also, because the home I grew up in was like a hundred year old home, and the basement looked exactly like that. The stone walls, it's not like concrete, it's not finished. So when the lights were off, I was like, oh, man, I don't want to go in the basement, even as a grown man. I don't want to be in my parents' basement. It's scary. And the second thing was, is that there was this phenomenon around the Blair Witch Project. I don't know if you all remember this, but it was right at the cusp when like people were starting to really use the internet, especially just for us because, you know, we were either graduating high school, heading into college or, you know, about to graduate high school. So, the internet was becoming a bigger thing for us and they really utilized the internet as far as marketing and playing on the found footage genre. I mean, we saw this movie and immediately we're like, is this real? Did this really happen? Because it was so well done. And it's a movie that can't be duplicated especially today because everything's so connected and there's so much information and and you can just, you know, do a deep dive and search and get to the bottom of stuff. But what that movie was able to capture was very special and many people have tried to replicate it and some have come close but none have done it as well as the Blair Witch Project. I can see you. I'm really excited about this. Thank you for I'm the opportunity. I'm very glad. This area's been haunted by that old woman. Oh, here. yeah. I
2: don't know why you have to have every conversation on video. Because we're
6: making a
3: documentary.
2: Not about us getting lost. We're making a
6: documentary about a witch. I don't. We're lost. Admit that first. No, I know we're not lost.
4: You're all over the place. But how do we know it was people? Well, even if it wasn't, I'm not going to play with that either.
6: And it's all because of me that we're here now. Hungry, and cold, and hunted. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom,
4: and Josh's mom, and my mom. Tell me where you are, Josh! (laughs) What is that?
0: The first time I heard about this movie humorously enough, I was in the woods on a nature hike with my friends, uh, Bob and Chris and Mary and Jane. And one of my friends who was already in college at the time, he had heard about this and he told me, he was like, hey, dude, these three kids went into the woods to make this documentary about an urban legend from the Maryland area and they completely disappeared. He's like, this was back in like 1994. Somebody found the cameras that they were using and they still had film in them. And they're releasing it in theaters, dude. And because he believed it when he told it to me, I believed it (laughs) with an alarming lack of skepticism, I might add. I was working
2: at a movie theater and back in the day, movies were on film and the films were on reels and the projectionist had to change over reels at certain times to make sure that the movie kept on going because it wasn't all digital and it wasn't all easily put on a little memory card. But the other thing that projectionists had to do, they had to watch every reel that came in before showing the film on Fridays, Fridays, the typical day when movies came out, they would watch the film themselves to make sure that there was no error in the films that they had. So with Blair Witch, the projectionist asked all of us employees. He's like, if you guys want to watch it with me, that would be great. Because I think he was a little scared to watch it himself. So we're like, yeah. We all sneak out of our parents' houses on a Wednesday school night and we go and watch Blair Witch, not even knowing like the mass market. We just saw the beginning credit. This is found footage of these three people. So we didn't even have like the ability to go online and see everybody else being like, obviously it's fake and da-da-da-da, because we were seeing it two days before it came out. On the drive home, I remember specifically, I was driving, we're all fucking freaked out of our minds, and I'm driving down this long wooded street. I'm all alone in my car, but I feel, you know, when somebody is in the back seat and their knee goes oh. against the seat behind you, mm-hmm. I feel that in the, my lower back, and I slam over the curb, I go into the, you know, the devil strip or the tree lawn, whichever you call it, and I race out of my car, and I'm like, there's somebody there's somebody in my car, there's somebody in my <laughs> Two of my like coworkers are like right behind me and they pull over and they're like, what's going on? And I was like, ah, there's somebody in my car. There's somebody Look in my backseat. And
6: there was nobody in it, but their Witch disturbed the shit out of me. I go camping now, thanks to my wife. And I think that's a compliment. I'm not sure yet. But nothing terrifies me more than the thought of laying in a tent and hearing something outside that tent, whether it be like a step, twigs breaking, something poking the tent, Whatever. It terrifies me. This movie played on our basic fears as human beings. It's scary without any like effects. It's scary without any flashy graphics. It's scary without a menacing antagonist chasing you around. It plays on that psychological fear that everyone has. And it lasts with you. It stays with you. Like when they wake up one morning and they find three piles of rocks next to the tent. That is some psychological BS that messes with you. I mean, come on. If you were to walk downstairs into a dark basement, and see someone standing in a corner, spoiler alert, you're going to think Blair Witch Project. Yeah, I rewatched it. Of course I rewatched it because I was like, you know what? That movie deserves it. I want to watch it again. I can't finish it, guys. I know what happens. I'm at the part where they're losing their mind. The guy threw the map away and they're finding all this random stuff in the woods to freak them out. It still works today. And that right there is a testament to what a great film it is because it's just so basic. I think it was made for like $66,000 or something like that. I think it grossed like 124 million. Yeah,
0: I think the production budget was about 60 grand, but I think once you tack on all the marketing that they did, somewhere around Like 400 to 600,000, which is still pretty cheap for a movie.
2: They even returned the cameras after they were doing it to Circuit City, (laughs) like (laughs) to to get some of their money back. This is really just a group of friends in college being like, let's make this movie. But Rudy's also
6: underselling the box office. It made almost 250 million. I mean, people were kind of blown away by this movie. Like, it is so special. And I feel like. If we're gonna be honest, I think it was overlooked by the Academy. I feel like it deserves some recognition, a nomination, consideration, something, because the performances alone are just so real. I don't know if it's there's a script, if it's heightened improv, but you see these people having panic attacks in a really stressful situation. Honestly, I feel like it was ahead ahead of its time. I'm sorry. Something's in my throat. Let me take a drink of coffee. Is that odd dog coffee? How how do you know? Mm. Is it the first found footage movie? Because I feel like it is. There
2: was found footage films before this one. The most popular one was Cannibal Holocaust in 1980. And then there was a bunch that nobody's ever heard of. But obviously Blair Witch put
6: it in the mainstream and
2: just blew it up.
6: Their promotional material that wasn't like a commercial or a trailer, it's a missing poster. It's the three actors <laughs> and it just says missing across the top of it and it gives their information. It like looks like a legit missing persons poster. That right there kind of speaks to the buzz that was created by this movie and why everybody had to see it. And, you know, I'm going to be completely honest. We didn't talk about this, but we've already established that I have a weak constitution. I had to like, I didn't leave the theater because I still wanted to hear what was happening. I had to go around where the trash cans were back behind the seats because I started getting nauseous. The damn camera is shaking so much. And I'm like, I'm going to vomit in this theater. I'm scared and I'm going to vomit. I pulled it together. I toughed it out and I finished it. But like, it's something that it just stays with you. I could go on and on about little moments in this film that are just so well done and they feel so genuine. And I feel that speaks to why it is such a successful, lasting film. The second question that we ask, we go
2: like, what's one horror film that you think the Academy me overlooked and then the second one is what award you would give it.
6: I wanted to give it screenplay written directly for the screen.
2: So I'm becoming a jerk because Lee likes to say like, it's a great script. And then I'm immediately countering with, did you read the script? So when it comes to Blair Witch, I know you didn't read the screenplay because I can't find the screenplay. <laughs> as I was watching Blair Witch and as I was getting the goosebumps again, then I started looking into how they made this film. And I think Blair Witch on this episode might be one of the most important movies we talk about when we're talking about the academy awards because blair witch is a symbol of pure art that came out of effing nowhere like it takes a miracle to get a movie made you could have all the talent in the world spielberg can't get some of his projects greenlit james cameron had to wait like what 15 20 years to be like avatar is now possible we could do this but look at blair witch when you have like a bunch of kids with a good idea saying we can make a movie and they make it in a way that has never been done before. They make it in a, like, it's almost like a scavenger hunt for the actors. First, they had to find actors that are willing to do this. You're going to go camping for eight days And we're going to be in the woods fucking with your brain. So Heather Donahue shows up for her audition and she's like petrified. She's like, you just have to assure me you're not making a snuff film and I'm the victim. And she brought a knife to set because she's like, you're having me sleep in a tent with two guys. I don't know. Then they tell the actors, here's a GPS. You're going to have to go to the next beep. And that's where you're going to find your next instructions. The next part of the story that we want you to devise through your improv. And you'll find your food and the, the tents are already going to be set up for you. Don't worry about that. And so the actors are going from beep to beep, finding out their story, like in one of the crates, that's when Mike finds out, all right, you're going to get rid of the map. And so then he has to do it. He felt like the actors saw him do it. And it wasn't until he said it on screen that they actually found out that he was the one that got rid of the map. It's like a murder mystery kind of unfolding before our eyes. And then because Josh and Heather didn't get along on set, the director and the writers who are off in the woods, you know, monitoring everything, watching daily the next day, they rewrite the script at that moment, because it was Josh that was supposed to be the one standing in the corner at the end. But because Mike and Heather got along better, they changed it. And so the next crate that, you know, Josh opened up was after everybody falls asleep, wait 40 minutes and disappear in the night. And then he does that, They find him like 50 yards away and they go, just so you know, you just died. And he's like, great, because there's a concert I really want to go to as an actor. And so he goes off. So they're rewriting as it goes. And so as I'm like researching all this, I'm like, because this movie is so good how it is, I feel like Blair Witch should be up for an honorary Oscar. I don't think a found footage film is ever going to be as good again. Like the marketing behind it, like there's Uh no Oscar for marketing, but this definitely deserves some creative award for how it was marketed. The acting, absolutely because it's not acting off of a script. It's all pretty much improv. Your camera people are the actors themselves. You can't give like a cinematography. Or, you know, you definitely can't. Because it even made you sick, Rudy. Yeah. yeah. But, like, <laughs> but like, you put everything into this pot. And you're like, I don't think we can boil it down to one simple Oscar. I think Blair Witch should be up for
6: honorary. Hey, I mean, damn. You get <laughs> no, no argument from me. I mean, you're right. It doesn't really fit into one of those categories, right? It doesn't. Right, cuz docu- it's not it would be closest would be documentary,
2: but it's completely
6: fake. Yeah. Uh, do I pronounce that word wrong? Doc documentary? Documentary? Think you're putting the wrong <laughs> emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
0: man. I like that. I like that. I was kind of getting there before you got there. I was like, oh, he's going to say that it should just be given an honorary Oscar for just being an innovative piece of filmmaking and, and art. I'm I'm with that, right? Obviously, I
2: prejudged you, Rudy, and I'm sorry. And I'm just going to put it like that.
6: <laughs> no, no, you you are correct, sir. <laughs> because, like, when when Lee sent me the message, I was like, "What the hell?" I don't watch horror movies. Like, but then I realized I did watch a couple, and they were pretty good. And I am a, an adult now, and I'm still terrified by these things. And I do scare easily, but. I feel like this pick is appropriate. It is still something that is, can stand up today. Especially if you like look into the backstory and realize
2: that these actors, they got lost, I think, in the woods three times. The crew put less and less food. By the last day, the actors were down to a power bar, an apple, and a bottle of water. And they were doing that to make sure that the actors were on edge. Yes, Blair Witch is fake. The whole ethos, the whole mythology behind Blair Witch is fake. But these people yelling at each other and getting under each other's skin like when mike goes for the camera and off it it's that she says like or he's like stop biting me heather was really biting him and there were a couple of times that the producers had to come out of the woods and be like guys settle down (laughs) wow this is you know like this is all process and everything like that so i mean like those moments that you're like wow this feels really real quite possibly were like this is almost like a psychological
6: experiment that went right dude they aimed these actors in the right direction and just let them go I remember in 1999 watching it and being irritated with Heather than being angry at Mike because of the whole map situation. And, See, and I never I was never angry with Mike. I totally Mike. sided with Mike. When he threw
2: the map away? He was absolutely right. Fuck that map. Y'all can't read it. You focus too much on it and it got us lost for like two days straight. Oh so he was map. like, let's get rid of
6: this map. And so they stopped focusing on that and focus on the compass. I would I would I would destroy you in the woods if you were Mike. <laughs> <laughs> walk out just two people yeah blair witch got him guys i don't know what it was (laughs) rudy thank you
0: very much for coming on thank you for this suggestion and we hope to have you on again soon
6: thank you guys so much this was a treat i always enjoy spending time with y'all and please everyone go watch the blair witch project
0: Is it time for us to do our picks, bro? I think so. So then I'll go first because I think your pick should probably end the show. This was a surprisingly difficult decision for me. I rented a bunch of movies I'd never seen before. I rented a bunch of movies that I hadn't seen for a while, maybe six or seven different times I was like, this is the one I'm going with. And then I'm like, no, I'm not going with that one. And even now I'm like, should I have picked the one that I picked? All right, I'm going to stand by my decision, which is Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room. Green Room is about an indie punk band called the Ain't Rights, who are traveling around the country playing whatever low rent gigs that they can get, barely scraping by. And just when it seems as if their tour is bust. They book a spot at a very unconventional venue deep in the forests of Oregon. Now, those of you who've never seen or heard of Green Room, you're probably thinking that you've got it all figured out. Everybody at the show turns into zombies or vampires or whatever, and the band has to fight their way out of the compound. You'd be half right. There are no ghosts or goblins in Green Room. Have you seen this one, bro? Because I don't know how much more I should say.
2: Yes, I've seen this one. I don't think there's like a twist to give away. The most surprising things to me about this movie are the things that happen almost randomly. I think you're safe. All right, I'll say a little bit more.
0: So the venue in the woods, which is really more of a compound, is predominated by neo-Nazis or skins as they're referred to in the script. And without revealing too much more, the band gets in way over their heads with these fuckers. Negotiating is out of the question, so the heroes are forced into an impossible situation against a group who's organized, armed, and determined to kill them. The ain't rights end up having to rely on each other and make do with what they have, which is not much. Truth be told, the story to this movie isn't hard to follow. The characters don't need much depth, nor do they get it. And the film's politics are unambiguous, unless you happen to be a Nazi sympathizer and then you might be a little conflicted. Green Room's only real interest is in terrorizing you. Escalating dread that becomes unbearable at points, hyper-realistic violence, which is among the most brutal I have ever seen. You could criticize it, particularly the final act, for being a little less authentic to the first two, but I won't. You can. I won't. The ending is just too damn satisfying. So what award do I think this movie deserved at least a nomination for? I'm going to go with Best Director for Jeremy Saulnier. I think he's one of the best working filmmakers who hasn't really broken the mainstream yet. I also really like the look and feel of Saulnier's films, which he matches so well with his subject matter. He's got a very sharp style and it's suited for heated dialogue exchanges and tense moments. And his use of color, not just in his titles, really impacts the viewing experience thematically and psychologically. Watching Green Room feels like you got shrunk down and dropped inside a half-empty bottle of piss warm beer. Green Room is a W for a lot of reasons, but mostly because of Saulnier's direction. It's meticulously planned, as though he's been thinking about this story his whole life, and he might have been at least half of his life. Anyway, Saulnier is from Virginia, And the DC hardcore scene aligns with his youth. He said in an interview that he comes from that world, the punk world. So I like imagining that once upon a time, he drove into our nation's capital for a show and the band on stage after spying some skins in the crowd opened with a cover of Nazi punks fuck off, just like the ain't rights do. But the images in green room just breathe and pant and hyperventilate right along with the viewer. And the sequences vacillate perfectly between frenetic combat and this quiet, sustained staying dread. I love every moment of this movie.
6: Throughout the years uh, trying to break into film, I've always had this idea of like a band in a siege situation in a green room. The
0: Ain't Right in a way is kind of based on some bands that Jeremy was in when we were growing up. And so the first 20, 30 minutes of this movie is kind of a romanticized, nostalgic version of that. A bunch of young kids that are barely in their 20s throwing all their crap in a van and driving around to play these dismal little shows with 15 people in
1: attendance who don't even really want to be there. And they do it because they love the music. It all starts with the band, and it was just about recreating that feeling of immortality
6: and naivete and everything that you have when you're young and you're dumb and you're just rocking and rolling. And then it all gets pushed
0: into a meat grinder as soon as they get to the venue. The skinheads are trying to cover up a murder that happened on the premises and the band kind of gets in the way of that and they're totally unprepared for how cold-blooded these people are. You couldn't ever consider yourself in that position and have to come face to face with the notion of survival.
6: It scared the shit out of me.
1: By the end of the night, that gets stripped down to human beings at their their rawest.
2: what award that really pops out at me that isn't even an award yet but i think i've mentioned it once or twice on this show if it was an award i think this would be a shoe-in for at least a nomination for best casting because the cast of this movie is on point from its heavies making blair playing gabe as this like neo-Nazi fuckhead that also is in the same instance, like as an audience member, you're sitting there being like, I hope he could figure out his shit so we could get our heroes safely out of the situation. He seems like a
0: reluctant neo-Nazi.
2: But I don't think he's a reluctant neo-Nazi. I think he's a pure neo-Nazi. I think he's a reluctant murderer. The late Anton Yelchin. R. R. Oh my gosh. He's just he's amazing. Imogene Poots, Alia Shawkat, All the way down from like Big Justin's Eric Edelstein, who's just my favorite he's a mountain of a man. And then of course, Patrick Stewart. And I think like when it comes to casting and everything like that, to be able to convince somebody of like Patrick Stewart's scale to take on this role of a neo-Nazi who just is almost sociopathic. Like if it's a bad movie, which you don't know when you have the script in your hand, it could be the greatest script in the world. And it could come off horribly. So Patrick Stewart, he does so well in this role that you're like, oh, it's Patrick Stewart. It's kind of like Macon Blair. It's kind of like Eric Eldelstein. Like it's it's these guys that you're like, oh, I really like what they're doing. And you know, they seem like teddy bears, but in the same instance, they're fucking Nazis. And personally, I think all Nazis should go by the wayside. So Nazi Nazi um, punks fuck off. Oh my gosh, Nazi punks fuck off. So casting, number one, but that's not an award. So directing, yes, I could see it. I would not, I could stomach it, but I think it's the writing that really makes this movie sing. Like you said, like, it's based in truthfulness. Like, it's the verisimilitude of, like, the situations. Like, the little things. Like, when Patrick Stewart is like, look, I'm getting hoarse. Can I just talk at this volume on this side of the door? Like, those little things, what might actually happen in a real situation? Because Patrick Stewart, I don't know how old he's supposed to be in this movie. He's an older gentleman and he's been screaming on the stage or not screaming, but, like, talking on the stage to this crowd of neo-Nazis. Like, He's been using his voice a lot. And so then when he's yelling through the door, he's like, can I just talk at this volume? He's either trying to convince Anton to get closer to the door for some nefarious activities, or he's being real and just saying like, I I can't shout anymore. I'm going to lose my voice. And we really got to think this through.
0: To me, it felt like an attempt for him to seem like this frail old man and to disarm these young kids and be like, oh, he's just an old guy.
2: And regardless, whatever it is, I don't care. Because the writer, the director has me in the palm of their hand and I'm here for this story. It's direction too, but I love the fact that when Anton then puts his hand out the door and they're like grabbing at the gun and whatnot, you know something's going on there. We focus on the horror in the room though, as he breaks Big Justin's arm and then Anton brings his arm back and it is slashed to shit. Everything is happening at once but it's not like some choreographed horror movie type shit. It's something you haven't seen before. And the m- whole movie is like that. The whole movie is just what feels like real life choices in a horrific situation. And it evolves from that point forward. So as far as that all goes, like, I feel like that is on the page. That is what was written. And so, you know, I would say like, sure, nomination for best director. I would really want to see the writing win the award. I think the Academy needs to re- like as we add diversity to the Academy, I think they have to add diversity in genre. Writing a good horror movie is really fucking hard. (laughs) Like to make things feel real in these situations and circumstances and to be like, and to create characters that all have different edge, but mainly are there for survival. I think I think more Academy members are old, stodgy, drama, historical fiction voting members of the Academy. Uh, need There needs to be some horror blood pumped in and just be like, we need one person screaming from the rafters. Everybody needs to read the script for Green Room because you can't tell me that this man didn't craft a story that is completely original.
0: I'm totally fine with changing it to best original screenplay. And in my research, I looked up, I just wanted to see what, what people were saying about this movie when it came out. And I'm going to shit on a guy who's been published in Vanity Fair, The Village Voice, and The New York Times, who writes for RogerEbert.com. Simon Abrams. In his review of Green Room, he railed against the unrealistic nature of these characters. He pinpointed how they tell people to empty their pockets and how they get down on their hands and knees to look under the door as if this guy knows what would be a realistic reaction in this situation reading that, I was like, this guy's a fucking hack. Maybe it's just because I'm jealous because the guy is clearly a a celebrated freelance film critic, but it's almost as if he was looking for reasons to not like the movie. How the fuck do you know what the characters would do in this situation? Who knows what you would do? Maybe Simon Abrams would curl up in the corner and suck his thumb. I don't know. Maybe (laughs) I would.
2: Oh, fuck. I would. I always laugh because people are like, it's the uh, fight or flight method. Why don't we talk about freeze? Because I freeze. (laughs) My fight or flight is freeze and just stand there and let it happen to you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I also also think you... Yeah, I mean, that's funny. We're both, you know, white boy pussies probably in the end, but... We we don't know what we would do. The the human spirit is indomitable. The human spirit wants to survive. So, who knows what you would do to perpetuate your own life?
2: Well, and I think if I was in a room with you and Rudy and MC and Emily and Joe and you guys were all like forming, I was like, I could I could get on board. But if I was alone, I'd probably be like, all right, I'm just gonna die of starvation in this room.
0: I might take a bullet train if I was alone and I had that, that gun. Be careful, it's a gift. <laughs> One
2: of my favorite just kind of life advice from my dad, my dad and I always bonded through movies. We were talking about like, my favorite critic, I think at the time was Peter Travers or something like that for Rolling Stone. And I was like, they didn't like the movie. And he was like, you have to understand that critics see a lot of movies and everybody has a genre that they don't like, but the critics don't tell you what genre they don't like. They'll just rail against the movie. And so you'll have like this style stod- 60 year old critic who doesn't like Disney movies, but he still has to review the Disney movies, and so he gives them a harsher critique. So maybe Simon is a wussy who doesn't like horror movies, or probably looked away, or watched it through his fingers, or was one of those people that takes that long reach for the popcorn when the music starts getting intense and buries their head down between their legs that's who simon is i don't know mm-hmm. simon but fuck simon all
0: right so i i'm gonna keep my pick as best director but i'm gonna add to it best original screenplay jeremy Solnier is Solnier, Solnier. i don't know how to say his fucking name js is great and yeah he, I, can't, he, he, I can't wait he for can always it always come on the show to correct you <laughs> he can he
1: can all right i can get you guys a solid gig matinee tomorrow doors are one you guys are on a three gentlemen. You're trapped.
6: <laughs> Things have gone south. It won't end well.
4: You can't keep us here, man. You gotta let us go. We're not keeping you. You're just staying. Shoot who is left. Let him Get
3: ready to run. Here we
5: go.
2: Careful now.
4: (laughs) This will be over soon, gentlemen.
0: All right, Spro, what's your
2: pick? All right, well, if I'm the last pick, let me just open this up by saying there's so many good picks out there and our guests brought a lot of good recommendations to the table. We thank them all as we start wrapping up this show. But I would be remiss if I didn't bring up a conversation I had multiple times with my late father and that was how the Oscars, in his words, completely fucked up with their awarding the sting over The Exorcist. The Exorcist was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, Linda Blair, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Sound. And it only won two awards. It won the Screenplay and Sound Awards. And while I'd give the award to Linda Blair or Ellen Burstein, I haven't seen Touch of Glass or Paper Moon with the actresses in them that they lost to. So I don't, I can't really say that for effect. But I doubt the roles of Glenda Jackson and Tatum O'Neill were as taxing. But I would have to give the award to producer William Peter Blatty, who wrote the screenplay based off of his book because the balls of some of the shit he pulled off on screen. Obviously, the scene you think of is a young girl stabbing herself in the vagina with a crucifix saying, Let Jesus fuck you! And then grabbing her mother's head, forcing it into said now bloody crotch and saying, LICK ME! is still one of the most disturbing things on film. And The Exorcist is almost 50 years old. But here's why The Exorcist is still absolutely terrifying today. Unlike books like Go Ask Alice that grabbed us growing up, The Exorcist was Blatty's fictional novel based on his Real research of a 1949 exorcism performed on an anonymous young boy known as Roland Doe by a Jesuit priest. Doe's family became convinced the boy's aggressive behavior was attributable to demonic possession and called upon the services of several Catholic priests to perform the rite of exorcism. It was one of three exorcisms to have been sanctioned by the Catholic Church in the United States at that time. Later analysis by paranormal skeptics asserted that Doe was likely a mentally ill teenager acting out, as the actual events, such as words being carved on his skin, were such that they could have been faked by Doe himself. Sure. Religious folk who don't like to admit to exorcisms say, yeah, this one was actually real. And the people introduced as quote unquote paranormal skeptics go, this was obviously fake. I don't have an opinion either way. I don't think people get possessed by maybe a made-up demon, but I like to believe in the more fun version of things. The novel changed several details of the case, such as changing the sex of the allegedly possessed victim from a boy to a girl and changing the alleged victim's age. Friedkin said he made the film with the intention of immortalizing the events involving Doe that took place in 1949, and despite the relatively minor changes that were made, the film depicts everything that could be verified by those involved. In order to make the film, Friedkin was allowed access to the diaries of the priests involved, as well as the doctors and nurses. He also discussed the events with Doe's aunt in great detail. Friedkin has said that he does not believe that the quote-unquote head spinning actually occurred, but this has been disputed. Friedkin is secular, coming from a Jewish family. So you can believe it's all bullshit and still be disturbed by the scenes of the film and be very nervous when your bed starts shaking for whatever reason in the middle of the night. I am not a believer in anything. I still have chills running down my legs like, I don't know,
1: This could have occurred.
0: And if it did, that's scary shit. I was raised. Catholic. I'm not practicing anymore. When I first saw this movie when I was younger, it terrified me this movie still affects me because of my religious background
2: my older sister was kind of a terror for sunday school because she kept asking the question why and so as she started getting kicked out more and more sundays we started going less and less on sundays to church so presbyterian didn't really take for me but in the same instance i don't know just the feeling that evil is out there perhaps because it's such a big world with you know running up on 8 billion people like these circumstances can happen in little dark corner somewhere. I don't know. But one reason Mike Nichols didn't want to do The Exorcist was he thought there was no way of finding a talented child who could pull off the Reagan character. And then Eleanor Blair walks in with her 12-year-old daughter, Linda.
6: You're going to die up there.
2: Reagan. And the account of the interview for the job is just disturbing. The research says, with Linda having demonstrated the personal qualities Friedkin was looking for, he then went on to see whether she could handle the material. He asked if she knew what The Exorcist was about, and she told him she had read the book. Quote, it's about a little girl who gets possessed by the devil and does a whole bunch of bad things. Friedkin then asked her what sort of bad things she meant. and She says, she pushes a man out of her bedroom window, and she hits her mother across the face, and she masturbates with a crucifix. Friedkin then asked Linda if she knew what masturbation meant. And Linda responded, it's like jerking off, isn't it? And she giggled a little bit. And then he asked, have you ever done that? And fuck, if this is not just the creepiest thing to read. Sure, haven't you? Linda responded. She was quickly cast as Reagan after tests with Burstein. Freakin realized he needed to keep that level of spontaneity on set. And I understand why Freakin was having this conversation. I get it. But asking a 12-year-old girl if she ever masturbated is fucking weird. Yeah, that's...
0: He went one question too many. I mean, if you... you... (laughs) Yeah, that last question was... I mean, the other two... I mean, I I get it. Do you know what that means since you're going to have to do it on film? But then to be like... So do you fucking wag off? <laughs> yeah, it's um, one question too many there, Willie Freeds. Well, I'm glad that we live in an age of intimacy
2: choreographers that can have that conversation for Friedkin, so he doesn't seem as creepy. I don't even know if an intimacy choreographer would have that conversation because in the end, she's a 12-year-old girl and you don't have to ask. <laughs> but in the same instance, I wouldn't classify the cross scene. I don't think I ever have looked at it as masturbating. Like, sure, she is saying, let Jesus fuck you, but I have never looked upon that as being anything sensual. It's like mutilation. Yeah, like it's straight up stabbing. If I jammed a pencil to my nose, nobody would say I was picking my nose with a pencil. I fucking stabbed myself in the nose. (laughs) So, stories about about the horrors of the set, the curse of the movie on its actors, Freakin's old-school directing approach, which hurt the most important people on the set, the special effects, the sound, the horror, all very revolutionary, and like some films talked about for this episode, all very real because of the success of the exorcist the studios put more faith into movies like jaws because african americans flocked to see the exorcist hollywood started ending exploitation films it became the highest grossing film in japan a country we exploit for their horror films remaking them into American slop. One of my favorite reviews of The Exorcist is from John Landau. John Landau and Rolling Stone called The Exorcist religious porn. Like, what the fuck is that? The Exorcist is like the deep throat of horror films. And by deep throat, I mean the porn movie that you could find in main franchises, not the spy of Watergate. It made horror films mainstream and meant they could make money if they were made well. And if we're going to do a horror show, we have to go back to when The Daring Exorcist could have, and in the words of my late father, should have won over the sting. In the actual words of my father, it was so atrocious. It was fucking goddamn travesty. Haven't cared about the Oscars since.
4: That's what I want.
1: And I said, you know what? My kids know it. So if my kids know it, how come you can't fucking figure it out?
2: (laughs) And so there you go, pops.
4: Hello, Reagan. I'm a friend of your mother's. I'd like to help you. You want to loosen the straps, huh? I'm afraid you might hurt yourself, Reagan. I'm not Reagan. I see. Well, then, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Damien Karras. And I'm the devil. Now kindly undo these straps. If you're the devil, why not make the straps disappear? That's much too vulgar a display of power, Caris. Where's Reagan? In here with us. Mm. Show me Reagan and I'll loosen one of the straps. Can you help an old older boy, father? Your mother's in here with his cars. Would you like to leave a message? I see that she can it.
1: If that's true, then you must know my mother's maiden name.
4: What is it? What is it?
0: Thanks for sticking with us for this entire episode. Hopefully, you're going to take with you maybe a few suggestions and watch one or two of them before All Hallows Eve. It is the
2: week. This is the week. If you're watching anything but scary movies this week, I don't know you. Like, this is Scary Movie Week. It's Scary Movie Month in my house, but this has
0: to be Scary Movie Week, right? Oh, I start September 1st is where, I I mean, I've been watching nothing (laughs) but Scary (laughs) movies. I I hold off on my favorites until October 1st. What are your favorites? Let's give out some recommendations as we leave our audience. Well, the one that I really wanted to go with and didn't, because it's a classic and because, you know, people are going to go, well, yeah, duh, is Alien. I'm a sucker for a haunted house movie and alien has been described as a haunted house in space. But you give me a good haunted house movie, and I'm yours. Here's one that a lot of people probably skipped because of who starred in it. But The Woman in Black is a really fun haunted house period piece horror film. Have you ever watched that with Daniel Radcliffe? I have not because of Daniel Radcliffe. There you go. (laughs) Not only have I watched the movie many, many times, but I actually had to read the book as part of my master's degree in English literature, which I always figure out a way to bring up. The wife and I were reading it. We just kept passing the book back and forth and reading it out loud to each other and crushed a pot of coffee and this was nine ten o'clock at night and I started getting really twitchy I don't know if that ever happens to you with coffee but but I was like we need to stop reading this, this is freaking me the fuck out <laughs> <laughs> So Alien for your classic recommendation, Woman in Black for one that maybe you didn't see. And of course, Housebound, if we're talking about haunted house stories, right? Of course, of course. If you want a dash of humor with your horror, Housebound. Fuck, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) (laughs) So Paranormal Activity freaks me the fuck out.
2: And I know people like to razz on it and hate on it and whatnot. Ghost stories are the ones that like, that's what scares me the absolute most. Doors shutting Cabinets opening, getting ripped out of your bed by invisible beasts. Like for some people, it's, you know, indestructible villains, you know, walking slowly toward them. For some people, it's demons. Like, what is yours? Well, you just made me think of-
0: Well, yeah. Well, but Haunted, I like Haunted Houses. I like Isolation. That's why I think the greatest triple feature of horror that you could ever put on the screen would be the Isolation Trilogy. Ridley Scott's Alien. John Carpenter's The Thing. John McTiernan's Predator. Three movies where your protagonists are cut off completely and have to figure out how to fend off this unstoppable force. I'm going to
2: cut you off right there because I... That's amazing. I mean, it's amazing that you put all that together, and then you come in here and recommend green room, which is pure
0: isolation as well. Like, oh yeah, there you go. I feel like that's a good note to end on. Sounds good to me. It's fucking <laughs> episode's way too long. Go watch some horror movies, guys. I'm Lee. I'm Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are ha. <laughs> Sorry. When
2: did you come up with that? That was pretty good.
0: I just did it right now. It's just out (laughs) out of my ass. Look at you on your feet. That was inspired by the Crypt Keeper. Yeah, no, I got that.
3: It's the power.
4: Holy water. It's the power of Christ that compels you. The power of Christ compels you. That the power of Christ compels you. The power of Christ compels you. (laughs) The power of Christ compels you.
2: So, when are we coming back? 11 7, November 7th. And we're bringing fan favorite Emily. Wonderful. I assume we'll be talking about another
0: Hollywood Chad. We're actually going to finish off what's left of Uncle Bad Touch Kevin Spacey. Yeah, but we did him already. Best Actor of 2000. <laughs> we gave it to Denzel, remember? Yeah, but he has two Oscars, Lee. Oh, yeah. And he won Best Supporting Actor of 96 for Usual Suspects. hmm Ooh, lots of good movies from 95. That'll be a good conversation.
2: Please help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show through Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And, you know, if you can make those reviews mostly positive, we'd love you forever
0: and if you know you like instagram you can follow at take on the academy for some updates lots of cinema posts or if you'd like to email go ahead and send those to take on at gmail.com we hope you hear us again soon where
2: where should our audiences sit for the next episode
0: oh well i hope they're sitting front row when the envelopes are red Price nice <laughs> that was a good thank you for that lead-in. appreciate that <laughs>
4: the power of christ compels you The power power of of Christ Christ compels you! The the power of Christ Christ compels you! The the power power of Christ Christ compels you! He brought you low by his blood-stained cross. Do not despise my command because you know me to be a sinner.
1: It's God himself who commands
4: you.